Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. All right, so um, we are going to be in Acts chapter 25. Now we're coming to the end of Acts, which I'm grieving. I'm, I'm, I'm mourning the fact that we're coming to the close of Acts. Maybe you, you might be elated because it's been like two and a half years that we've been in Acts. But it's been so good and so powerful. And, and one of the things you may have noticed that as we're moving through Acts at this portion of the book, there's a lot of repetition that seems to be taking place. Right? It seems as though the same things are happening time and time again. And, uh, and it's kind of hard to make sense, and it's a little bit monotonous. Okay? But that's why we have to study Scripture, because when we study Scripture, the monotony that seems to be on the surface is actually much deeper and much more awesome uh, than what we tend to give it credit for. But, but you're right, it is the same things are repeating. Uh, Paul is being uh, tried uh, over and over again for, uh, uh, you know, uh, falsities that he's been accused of. And he's finding himself time and time again uh, being charged with things that he didn't do. Okay? So here we have the Apostle Paul. If we could just flash back for a second. The Apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem with the intent that he minister to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem at the time. Now there was some contention there. So he had to go way out of his way to be blameless and loving and to present himself as loving during that time. And so what he decided to do was to go to the temple and participate in a, uh, a, a ritual cleansing of a Nazarite vow. And so he's there with, there with these other men worshiping for several days in the temple. But there's a group of Jews that have come, come in from Asia Minor for Pentecost who see him and recognize him in the temple. And uh, obviously he is the enemy at this time of the Jews. And so uh, they make accusation, they draw him out of the temple, they're yelling, they're screaming, it's hard to make sense of what's going on. And so uh, a Roman uh, uh, chief captain uh, of the Roman army steps in, pulls Paul away to the side, conducts his own very short hearing, and it's just absolute chaos, okay? Uh, The religious leaders of of, of the Jewish faith, they show up, the Sanhedrin show up, and they're making these accusations, uh, but none of it seems to be sticking. And then they start, there's some infighting that's going on, and and the chief captain decides, look, we're just going to put him in jail until we can figure this out. Now, in that time, there's a plot against Paul's life. You remember that? There's a conspiracy that they want to kill Paul, uh, that if they can get him outside of the, of the jail, uh, that they want to kill him, and they've got this in mind. And so what the chief captain does, he very wisely sneaks Paul out of Jerusalem and takes him down to Caesarea, which is where the Roman authorities basically occupy that space. The governorship is in Caesarea. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And so they take him down there, they sneak him out by night, and uh, then they have another hearing. The Sanhedrin come down, they have another hearing, there's a bunch of, bunch of false accusations, none of it sticks. And uh, the governor at the time is this guy named Felix, and Felix basically determines, look, nothing you've said about Paul you, do you have any evidence for. So I, I, I know you want this guy dead, but I can't, I can't charge him with anything. But Felix is a bit of a, uh, a sleaze, okay? This guy, a, he's a sleaze bag. And so because he doesn't want to get himself in trouble with the Jews in Jerusalem, okay, these are the people that he rules over, and he wants to have good relationships with them, right? So what's going on? What? Oh, it did? I didn't catch it. Demo- is it like demonic sounding? I promise I'm not possessed (laughs) of anything but the Holy Spirit, and I'm not speaking in tongues, so that's not happening either. But uh, so, so nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, Felix recognizes that if he wants to keep good relationship with the Jews, uh, that he's got to keep he's got to keep Paul on house arrest, and so that's what he does, and that's kind of where we have left off now. Today we're going to have, uh, as you can see, the the message is called uh, a good confidence. And what we've learned over the last few months of looking at these situations that Paul is in 
is that really he's losing control over his life. He's, he's losing his ability uh, to make decisions about his own body, about his own mind, about his own, what he wants to do. What his, he's losing control. And he is obligated to obey and to do just as the Roman authorities have told him to do. And, and as we look at his life, despite these, these circumstances, despite his situation, what we discover is that rather than fearing, rather than being anxious, he's full of confidence. And that's what we're going to discover today. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about where does that confidence come from? You know, in our, our world, uh, confidence is something that seems to really be lacking. Right? And, and, and the way I think of it is that the opposite of confidence is fear. And in our world, uh, there, is, there is so much fear. Fear, really, uh, of all of the unknown that exists all around us, right? I mean, who knows what America is going to look like two or three years from now? It's very hard to determine. And all of these things that are in upheaval, all of the things that are outside of our control, usually they lead most people to fear and anxiety. Uh, I, I was having uh, John Kindler over to my house, I think it was Thursday night, because we're getting ready to do a postscript episode on the topic of fear. And because I do think it's, it's such a big deal. And so we're talking about what that episode is going to be like. And we start having this conversation. And one of the things that he pointed out and I thought was really interesting was this idea that fear is really cultivated from a very young age based on experience. Because everybody has different fears, don't you? I mean, I, I have, I, there's a lot of things that I'm not afraid of, okay, that you might be, right? And vice versa. There's things that I fear that you don't fear. And the reason that is is because we've been, we've been trained through experience to have particular fears. Maybe it's based on the way that your parents raised you. Maybe you came from an abusive home. Uh, maybe you, you had uh, traumatic experiences at an early age. Because here's what happens is fear is a, is, a, is a feeling. It's an emotion, and it's a mechanism that warns us against danger. You understand? And so when we, we all determine that danger looks different from an early age, and then fear is the feeling that we get when we think we're experiencing something dangerous. Now, the problem with that is, is that when that becomes our experience and that becomes a pattern in our life, we begin to ap apply fear uh, to everything that falls into that category or, or, or provokes that particular feeling. And so for me in my house, I, as I, just to share with you from my past experiences, when I was coming up, I, there was a lot of suffering in my home. Okay, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of money. My dad ran out on us. Uh, I lost my sister at age three, almost four years old. My, my sister died and passed away. Uh, my, my father was abusive. He was an alcoholic. And from a very young age, I went through a lot of suffering, and it forced me to kind of be the man of the house. And so there's not a whole lot. I, I was kind of trained not to fear. I was kind of trained to, to like, I, I had to step up. And there's a lot of things that, that I think that I'm not afraid of because of those experiences. But you know the thing that I'm the most afraid of? And I had to come to grips with this, and maybe John will draw it out in me, of, of me in the podcast. We'll see. He's good at that. He'll probably turn it around on me and start probing and counseling me in the middle of the interview. But the thing that I discovered that I'm probably the most afraid of is the rejection of authority in my life because my dad threw me away. And so in my life, I have this really intense fear that particularly men that I respect uh, reject me. And so when they, when they when they don't like something that I did or, or, or I sense that they may be upset with me, that's the thing that tends to throw me into depression and anxiety. Okay, so that's me confessing to you. But you have your own fears, don't you? You have the things that, that you fear, and they're unique to you. But here's the thing that I want to point out, is that a relationship with Jesus Christ has the ability to transcend or, or, or overpower the fears that we so often experience in our lives. And as we look at Paul today, we're going to get a few ways in which he was confident. Areas of his life that we can turn to and ask the Lord to, to, to give us or to provide us with similar forms of confidence. Does this make sense to everyone? Okay. So with that, 
we're going to pray. We haven't even started the message yet. Okay, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And we know that you, uh, that all of the experiences that we have in our lives, that you've always just intended to work those things out for good. And uh, Lord, we can, we can trust you with that. And, and if we put our confidence in you, Lord, I know that you'll strengthen us. And so, Lord, I just want to, before we get into the sermon, I, I think it's appropriate for me just to acknowledge the fact that, that, that even your son, Jesus Christ, had fear of the cross. It was an emotion. It was a, a feeling that came to him in the, in the garden in prayer. And there was a moment in which he feared but because he's God and because he's good and because he's all-powerful, he, he went to the cross with honor and with confidence. And Lord, I would just ask that that, that same power and that same authority that Jesus Christ employed to do what was just obedient, Lord, I pray that you would give us that same strength. And that when we fear, which is a very natural, normal feeling, when we, when we fear, the Lord, you would remind us of all the things that you are so that we can do the hard things despite the fact that we have fear and anxiety. And so, Lord, we're asking for your help today. Uh, help for us to, to properly uh, dissect your word, uh, to do it justice, but, Lord, also uh, we're, we're trusting that you would provoke in us all of the right things, all of the changes that need to happen in our lives, all the ways in which we need to have faith. We're asking that you would do that work. It's, it's a work that only you can do. And so we're asking for your help, and we're asking it in the name of the gracious and beautiful uh, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So as we engage uh, today's story, we, we find that there is a change in leadership in Jerusalem, which is important to the story. So Felix, who was the governor in, in Acts chapter 24, uh, there, he's often referred to as the, the procurator. In other words, uh, you guys remember Pontius Pilate, yeah? That guy, right? The guy, the washing the hands guy, okay? Felix basically has his exact same responsibility and because uh, we, we talked about how corrupt Felix was, well, he, he gets found out, okay? His criminal activity gets found out. Him, in fact, a group of other governors as well, history tells us that Felix gets found out for taking bribes. Remember, he's, a, he, he's wanting to take bribes. He wants to take a bribe from, from Paul, even. And uh, he gets found out, and he gets prosecuted, and, and as he's being prosecuted, he gets replaced with this guy uh, that we refer to as Portius Festus. Okay, so if we look at Acts chapter 24, verse 21, it says, But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's uh, room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. In other words, as the administrations were shifting, Felix could have left, uh, let Paul go, but he didn't. Okay, because so many of the accusations against Paul were coming from the Jewish people. He was the one that, uh, that they were the ones that he was trying to get bribes from, you see. And so there was a hatred from the Jewish people against Felix. And so Felix, in order to kind of soften the blow of his prosecution, decides that he's going to leave Paul in jail in order to do the Jews a favor. And that's where we're kind of at. Now, now Portius Festus comes in, and what we're going to discover is that he is a diplomat. And he wants to be the exact opposite type of person that Felix was. He wants to be above board. He wants to be transparent. He wants to rule uh, uh, Jerusalem well. And so he wants to clear his books. And one of the very first things that he does when he comes into power is that he goes to Jerusalem in order to ameliorate the uh, relationship between the Rome, uh, Romans and the Jews. So verse 20, or chapter 25, verse 1. Now, when Festus was come into the province, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, I, before we get too far, I want to point out that historically, uh, do you guys remember uh, uh, Herod the Great, right? Uh, earlier on in Acts, this is the guy that wants all of the praise to himself, this really awful human being. 
Uh, Herod the Great builds a township in Caesarea named after Caesar because he so hates being in Jerusalem. Really, he should have been ruling in in a seat in Jerusalem because these were the people that he ruled over. But he decided to build a township just just north uh, west of Jerusalem because he hated being there so much. Because apparently Jerusalem was a fairly drab city with a not, not a whole lot going on. And so uh, he, he builds this city in Caesarea and Festus comes from Caesarea to, to Jerusalem to, to create restitution. And upon arrival, he was immediately met by the Sanhedrin. So the re- religious rulers come out to meet him. Verse 2, Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired, uh, desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. Okay, so what's going on here? Uh, the Sanhedrin, basically, they, they want to see Festus release Paul to come to Jerusalem because they would like to try, them, uh, try him themselves. That's what they want to do. But all the while, they still have that same recycled plot, okay, they're hoping that, that when Festus releases him to come to Jerusalem, they can entrap Paul and kill him. They don't want a trial. So it's the same, the same old plan, the, the same old shtick, okay? They're not, apparently they're not very creative, okay? And so uh, they're, they're wanting Festus to send him back, but Festus is not willing. He doesn't want to do that. He's smarter than that. And Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly, uh, thither, and let them, therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And so this is like what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'm not going to send him to Jerusalem. That wouldn't be right, okay? Uh, but because I'm trying to get out of Jerusalem, because it's drab here and it's lame, I'm going to go back to Caesarea, and if you want to come back with me, uh, you can come with me and we'll have another hearing. And we'll find out whether or not that Paul's guilty. Okay, and so that's what they do. Verse six, and when he had tarried among them more than 10 days, he went down into Caesarea and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and uh, and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Sound familiar? That same stuff over and over again. Okay, they can't prove anything, they have no evidence, and here they are once again making pleas, making provocations, and they're very unsuccessful in doing that. So after they, they present, Paul makes a rebuttal. And like we've said before, Paul is very uh, wise, and he's very to the point when he speaks. Verse 8, and while he answered for himself, he makes it very clear. He says, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. I haven't done anything. There's no reason for me to be in prison. I haven't offended the Jewish faith. I haven't done anything to blaspheme the temple, okay, which the Romans would have been upset about, right? And the Jews as well, right, clearly. And he says, I've done nothing against Caesar. I've done nothing wrong. So set me free. Let me go. And Festus knows. Festus knows that that Paul has done nothing wrong. But because Festus is a diplomat, because he is so good with statecraft, and he wants to make sure that the relationship is right, he, he makes a proposition. Okay, Rather than letting Paul go, which would have been the right thing to do, he makes a proposition Verse 9, but Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before men? All right. So what he's saying is, hey, come on, Paul. Help me out here, man. Why don't you go up to Jerusalem and then just stand trial there and be heard of the Jews? Now, if you're Paul, he's got to be as exhausted with this situation, I mean, as we are, right? I'm exhausted with it. Again and again, the same thing. There's no evidence. There's no proof. There's, and Paul knows better. He knows better. 
And so he's, he's tired. He's tired of the whole situation. He can't trust that Rome is going to do right. And he can't trust that the Jews are going to do right. He can't trust that the, the governorship, the, the rulers of the land, wink, wink, are going to do what's right. Does it, amen? And he can't trust that the religious leaders are going to do what's right. If anybody has had much experience in religion, right? He can't trust these guys or these guys. And so he's left kind of in a straight. Verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if it there be, if it there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. And then he makes this very important statement. I appeal Unto Caesar. Okay, now this is a very important decision on Paul's part. Now we could read that and be like, eh, just part of the story. I don't know what's going on, blah, blah, blah. No, and historically, this is a big deal. Uh, he says, I appeal unto Caesar, which is, would be a, the equivalent of us saying, I'm, I'm done with all of these lower courts. I appeal to the Supreme Court. Now, as a, as a Roman citizen during this time, Paul actually has the right to make this appeal. He's done with all the rigmarole, and he, he wants to stand before Caesar and Caesar's delegates in order to have once and for all, maybe, maybe, I'll get a, a fair hearing. And so it's a, it's a decision he makes, and it's a big deal. And in this decision, he actually places the entire situation even further out of his own control. Okay, when it was at the local level, he thought maybe to himself, if I, if I make the right argument, if I say the right thing, if I present the right evidence, that maybe this thing will all blow over and they'll let me out and I'll get back to doing ministry, which is what I really want to do. And none of that happened. It never came in, no matter how articulate he was, okay, no matter how well he presented his case, they weren't going to let him go. And so he decided to appeal unto Caesar, and that's what he says. And Festus, by law, uh, had to grant him this wish. And so verse 12, it says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. And that's our story for today. Okay? Except for the fact that we kind of, we need to extrapolate from the passage where this kind of confidence comes from and what it actually looks like. We need, to put it, we need to put it beneath a microscope for a second and draw out the things that are beneficial to our life if we're going to overcome fear ourselves. You understand? So let's do that. Um, the very first thing I want to point out to you is that Paul, Paul has no sense of helplessness here. Okay? Okay. Uh, uh, let's just for a second remind ourselves that the last two years, almost everything has been out of our control, right? Uh, whether or not you're working from home or, or, or at your workplace in an office, because someone's making a decision about where you're going to go and what you're going to do, okay? Uh, someone else is making a decision about whether or not you're supposed to wear a mask. Someone else is making decisions about whether or not you're supposed to be vaccinated, Okay, someone is always telling you what to do. Uh, we're going to close the school. We're not. We're going to open the school. We're going to. We're going to do school online. We're going to do school in person. Here's the rules, and they're constantly changing. And in a world that's constantly changing and constantly un unknown, it is. It's common for us to feel kind of helpless and, and even hopeless. And yet Paul doesn't. Paul doesn't exude any of those things. And the reason is, the very first reason is, is because he's confident in God's strength. In God's strength. First and foremost, Paul is confident in the power of his God. Now this sounds like a really, and as I wrote it, I felt like this is the most Christian thing I could say. <laughs> like this is the most generic preaching point I could possibly make. 
All right? And so as trite and as cliche as it sounds to say, uh, as it sounds to say uh, that, that, that Paul had confidence in God's strength, it is nonetheless true. It's nonetheless true. He had all of his confidence. He put all his money down on God. What else was he going to do? What else was he going to do? And he affirms this very confidence in his letter to Corinth. So let's look at that real quick. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Okay, what's, what the heck? I guess let's talk about what's going on here real quick. Paul was given prophetic word, right? He was given revelation by God. He was an apostle, and he penned the majority of your New Testament. Now, what he's doing is he, he's right here, he's reflecting on the fact that God gave him an ailment. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the ailment was in order to humble him and keep him humble before the Lord because I, I don't know about you, uh, I, I, I would think a prophet is probably prone to pride, right? If God's speaking you, to you directly, there's maybe an opportunity for you to be lifted up in pride like you're extra special. And what he's saying here is that God was reminding of how not special he was. By giving him this ailment it, or allowing him to have it, forced him into a position of faith. Now, the point that I really want to point out comes next. Verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice. He prayed three times that it might depart from me. And, the, and he, the Lord, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, I want to I point out to you just how powerful this paradox is. All right? And when we say paradox, what we mean is that it seems on the surface like the statement, I'm strong when I'm weak, is a contradiction. Right? Um, like when we think about weakness... Like, you guys saw a picture earlier of Eloise up on the screen for the Kid Town thing, right? Uh, Eloise is weak. Right? I can beat Eloise up. <laughs> like, if we were to go toe-to-toe, just one <laughs> She's tiny. She's weak. She appears on the surface to have no power, right? Okay? She's very cuddly, by the way. We only just cuddle, okay? Uh, she wants to wrestle, but it's like... <laughs> okay? Uh, she thinks she's tough, but she's actually pretty weak. And that's how we often think about weakness, right? In physical terms. But what the Bible's talking about here is this idea that when we lower ourselves and humble ourselves before the Lord, as we present ourselves in the true weakness that we are, Okay, because compared to the Lord, compared to who he is, I don't care how much time Wyatt spends in the gym. Now, no matter how, I mean, Ryan was looking particularly buff today, I noticed. CrossFit is, is doing him well. But no matter how strong Ryan gets, he will always be weak compared to the Father in heaven. And the truth about every one of us is that we are just weak, but we forget that, don't we? We think that we're strong. We think that we're strong. We're convinced of our, of our, even in terms of intellectual power or resolve or willpower. And we like to assert control over situations because we're convinced that we have the answers, that we have the power, and that we're smart enough and we're strong enough and we can get it figured out. And the point here is that the real power comes in weakness. Deciding that we are weak he writes more about this in the letter to Rome. In, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, 
to them who are the called according to his purpose. And I, this gives us another facet of this thinking because what Paul's saying here is that I have the ability to give everything over to him knowing that every experience, even if it seems to be outside of my control, every single experience, every single situation, that God is going, because he loves me, to work it out to good in my life because I love him. And I don't have to assert control. And I don't have to take power over the situation. I can give it all over to him knowing that he's always going to work his strength to my very best. He's, he loves me. He adores me. In every situation, he's working it for my best. And I have to believe that. And when I believe that, I can let go. I can say, I am weak. I don't have any power in this situation. I don't have any power over my boss. I don't have any power over my parents. I have little, very little control in any given situation. And in those situations, I have to learn to simply say, not me, Lord, but you. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. Because I'm weak. And that leads us to key point number one. A mission-minded believer has confidence in the strength of the Lord. And I say mission-minded because it's only a mission-minded believer that actually is thinking a whole lot about Christ's strength. A mission-minded believer is the only type of believer that, ha that has any reason to even think about it. Because most Christians in our world are completely comfortable with the fact that Jesus saved them, but they're going to retain all the strength, all the power, and all the control over their lives. But it's the mission-minded believer that is willing to relent that control and put their confidence in the strength of the Lord. Isaiah 12.2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is, is become my salvation. And I love that. And I don't have a whole lot of time. I could spend all day on Isaiah 12.2. Okay, because listen, this is what it says. At the beginning it says, God is my salvation. Which is so true, isn't it? He saved me from my sin. He set me free. But the last statement here is, here is that he's become my salvation, which is active. It's, it's, it's being lived out in every moment. He is, he's become my salvation as I walk and as I move about in this world. He is constantly my salvation, not just in terms of my sin, but also in terms of my circumstances. But here's the, the deal, and, and here's the question that we need to answer is why do we still struggle with believing this as Christians? Why? When we hear it all the time from the preaching, God is my strength, oh, yeah, we sing it, and it becomes, and it becomes this, this cliche statement. And, and, and the thing is, it just goes right over our head. We don't think, why is it that we're so flippant about this? See, for us, we're deceived because we forget that God is even present with us, let alone that he's all-powerful, we don't even remember that he's here with us even right now. When you're at home in bed, he's there. He's there, okay? When you're at school, when you're at work, when you're in conversations with people, he's there. He's present. And see, because we forget his presence, why would, why would we ever think about whether or not he's powerful? It's not even on our mind what his character is or what he does. We don't even, most of the time, don't even believe that he's standing with us or watching us or looking over us, let alone, let alone that he's working all things for our good. I mean, this is the way we think. Is that even if, even if God had the power... Why would he even exercise that power and that strength over my life? Why would he do that? He's busy. He's, he's off doing other things. He's got, he's got other fish to fry. And we convince ourselves that our stuff, you know, God's not in that stuff. And we're lying to ourselves. And here's the reason that we come to, to those thoughts. And, and here, here's how we draw those conclusions. is because we don't commune with God. The reason that we forget his strength is because we don't even talk to him. The reason we forget his strength and the reason we don't know that he's present is because we don't act like he's present. 
Because if we were acting like he was present, then we would have prayer lives. And our knees would be well-worn and tried. And every morning when we wake up and every night as we go to sleep and throughout the day as we're driving and moving about life, we would be communing with God because praying is the act of believing that God is present and powerful. That he can do all things. But because we don't want to know him, then we fail to believe that he has strength. We need to learn to pray. Because when we pray, we'll be reminded that God is big enough. That he's strong enough, that he's powerful enough. And those words won't be cliche. They'll just be true. They'll just be true. Confidence is formed in prayer. Number two. Paul, so obviously, Paul believed that God had the situation under control. But he was also confident in God's providence. Okay? And when we say providence, what we mean, that word means absolute control and authority over every given circumstance. Every single thing. He has the, the power to interject and to move the pieces as he sees, fits, that, sees fit. That's providence. And so we, we realize that, that Paul believes in God's providence when he makes the statement, I appeal unto Caesar. I don't know what else to do. It's, it's as though he's throwing everything in with God and saying, God's got it. I don't even know what to do anymore. The situation's so far outside of my control. I just want to give it over to him and, and just let him take control. Now, Paul puts his well-being in the judicial powers of the empirical institution of Rome. Now, it's important for us to understand that during this time frame, the guy in charge, the emperor of Rome, is who? Is anybody in the pastoral epistles class? Nero. Nero, right? Nero's in charge. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Nero, but that guy sucks. (laughs) He's a terrible, terrible... Now, he hasn't fully evolved into the monster yet that he'll become. Just give it like, it's like three years from this moment. He becomes what is later referred to as the greatest and first persecutor of the church in all of history. He's the great persecutor. He's he's a type of antichrist. Okay? And all of this is going to come to light. In fact, you know, when we conclude the book of Acts, we'll talk a little bit about how historically, in, in time, Nero is actually the demise of Paul. He's the one that beheads Paul, kills him. That's what history tells us. Okay? So then the question for us becomes, well, if Nero is such an awful person and Rome is corrupt, then why the heck would Paul say, I'm going to turn it over to Caesar and I'm going to let Caesar take care of this situation. What would lead him to do that? Why would anybody do that? It seems counterintuitive. The reason he did it is because he believed that the most powerful being in the universe had divine superintendence over Nero, over Rome, and in fact, Every governorship, statehood, country, authority, captain of an army, that the God of the universe had control over all of them. Every single one of them. And nothing would happen to Paul outside of God allowing it to happen. He knew that. that. That mindset was critical to his confidence in the Lord. Now he talks about this kind of confidence in Romans chapter 13. Okay, verse 1, he says, Let every soul be subject unto the, high, unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the, of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. 
For he is the minister of God to thee, for, uh, to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Okay. Now, I'd love to preach this. Don't have time. Here's the point. Here's the point that he makes. That every single ruler on the face of the earth is put there and is under the authority and control of God. Okay, now, I'm not suggesting to you, someone's listening to the postscript. (laughs) Do you hear that? That song haunts me. (laughs) Okay. Um, So what I'm not suggesting to you, I'm I'm not suggesting that Nero was just doing the bidding of the Lord. Okay? Because obviously he wasn't. What Paul's saying is that we can trust the authorities. Doesn't matter if it's if it's Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush, doesn't matter who it is. Now we're getting like some of you weren't even born. Like, like Bush? Who came before that? I don't even know. Okay? President Lincoln, is that what you said? No, that's not. It's not, not President Lincoln. Um It doesn't matter who it is. See, God is working an agenda in the world. And and because he's working his agenda, he's he's allowing men, whether they're wicked or, or, or humble, he's allowing them to take positions in authority so that he can work out his perfect will. Paul believed that. And he even goes so far as to tell Timothy, shortly after, actually shortly after this moment in time, he reaches out to Timothy in a letter, and he tells Timothy that Timothy ought to always pray for the rulers, that they might make decisions that are according to God's will. 1 Timothy 2.1, I exhort thee therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is, a good and ex- uh, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, we already know that Paul and Peter and the boys are not going to submit to the authorities if the authorities are asking to, them to go against the convictions of God. We already know that. If Nero asked Paul, look, I'm going to let you out, but you got you to gotta go beat up all the little kids... Um, that's a reference to me beating up my daughter earlier. Okay. You gotta go do something against your conscience. You gotta, you've gotta, you've gotta deny Christ. Right now in our world, okay, in places all over the world, the Sudan comes to mind most quickly. On a daily basis in our world, Christians are being asked to deny Jesus Christ. And when they don't, they are executed on the spot. You can pretend that doesn't happen, but it's happening. And that's an authority. An authority is saying, deny Christ. I will not deny Christ. Okay, done. Okay, so, so hear what, what Paul's saying. He's not saying, do whatever the authorities tell you to do. What he's saying is that we need to be submitted to the authorities at the level that we can in order to allow God to just work out his, his plan. Let him do his thing, whether it be to our demise or to our strength. And that's a big deal. And that leads us to key point number two. A mission-minded believer has confidence in the management of God. That's what we're getting down here, is is whether or not God can manage the situation. Right? Like, does God see all the stuff that's happening? Like, maybe God doesn't know that blah, 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 blah. Maybe God doesn't see that, you know, maybe he doesn't understand because here's the real situation. And we just lie to ourselves over and over again because we want to take management out of God's hands and we want to put it back into our court. And that's wrong. Because God's smarter than you. And he's better. Okay? And he can manage things better than you can. And so at the point that you know, look, this situation, this circumstance is outside of my control, then we have the ability to hand things over to him and put, and put all the power on him. And so, do I put my trust in the government? Is that where my faith is? Is in the government? No. 
I put my trust into the, into the superintending power of God. That's what I do. And I trust him that he's going to work all things out the way that he sees fits. He sees fit. And this enables me, this is a really important statement that I'm not going to spend much time on, but I think it's worth noting. Okay? This enables me to passively engage the broken systems and situations of this world while actively engaging with God. Okay? So, they want to tell me that I can't preach the gospel on campus? Okay? I am going to very passively engage that reality. Okay? Because I have a higher authority. Okay? Whether it be, whether it be uh, that you need to be vaccinated, uh, whether, whether, no matter what the situation is, someone's trying to assert some sort of control. Uh, they're trying to, so, you know, what, okay, for instance, in our world, we pay taxes. Those taxes go to supporting abortions all over the United States. Don't know what to tell you about that. Ain't good. Ain't good. Now, if I wanted to assert control, I would just stop paying taxes. But because it's not my responsibility, and because I can trust the Lord, and because Jesus Christ himself said, give unto Caesar, what's due unto Caesar? It's his responsibility to work that out. I can pay my taxes with a clear conscience and just passively engage my reality so that I can live peaceably with all men that I might go into the world and, and preach to them the gospel. That's my primary objective. And so that's the thing that I think we need to remember is that when we see the world falling apart and we don't like decisions that presidents are making or governors or Supreme Courts or whoever it might be, or we don't like the decisions they're making. We've got to learn how to passively engage the broken system that we're in and instead actively engage with God. That's our responsibility, to know him and to know him better and to trust him with all of the stuff that's outside of our control. To trust him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, who he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set his own right hand in the, in the heavenly places. Far above all principality, okay, that means all rulership, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That's the power of our God. He's bigger than any president, any king, any boss that you have, any cranky boss that's telling you what to do, any professor that's telling you what you should and shouldn't think ethically, he's bigger than all that. He's better than all that. He's more powerful than all that. And in that same power that raised Christ from the dead, he's given it to you. And you don't have to be afraid. And then finally, be confident in God's outcomes. Be confident in God's outcomes. Paul is also confident in the outcomes that God has for him, regardless of what they are. Regardless. He doesn't care. He doesn't care exactly what the outcomes are. He's just trusting them, which is the thing that we're all most afraid of, right, is the outcomes. Right? We think about, well, if this happens, then that will happen. And I don't want that to happen. And because I don't want that to happen, I'm going to control this. That's the way we think. But if we start from, this is called reverse design. In education, we call this like backwards design. If you start with the outcome and work your way backwards, everything falls into place. So if in my mind, the outcome belongs to God and I'm confident in the outcome, then if I work my way backwards, every decision I make can be full of faith. Here, here's how Paul puts it, and I, and I want to really look at this because I think it's the most powerful thing that we're going to say today. Acts chapter 25, verse 11. For if I be an offender, 
This is his statement that he's making before the Sanhedrin and before Festus. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. Okay? But if there be none of these things, whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Okay, do you know what he's saying here? Okay, do you understand what this statement is? What he's saying is, I don't care about dying. I don't care about it. I don't care about dying. So, I'm not afraid to say, I'll appeal unto Caesar. And whatever he decides, I'm sure God will be in it. It's all good. I appeal unto Caesar. Because I'm not afraid to die. And here's the question I want to ask you is, what can the enemy do to a person who thinks that way? And the enemy can't do anything. Now consider your own life. Do you have professors at school that reject you as backwards, foolish, and bigoted? Certainly you do. I'm sure. I mean, if you talk about your faith at all. Do you have friends and family that despise what you believe? What if you have to turn down a job because you know that that job is going to ask you to do something that goes against your conscience and what the Word of God says? In the last six months, I've talked to at least three of you who have either almost failed a class or had to turn down work because they were going to ask you to do something that was unbiblical. What about if you get kicked off of campus? What if they try to close the doors of our church? I mean, I think at this point, we recognize that that's a real reality. I think we've all learned the lesson that there are people that wouldn't be opposed to doing that, that there's consensus that even maybe we should. And what if these things come? And what if these situations arise? And what if, what if things are working against you in your faith? Trying to silence you. Are you going to fear? Are you going to try to control the situation and, and let your opinions rule over your life? And, and are you going to determine what you shouldn't do? And you know, the cranky, stubborn version of you is like, well, I'm not. Nah, 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 nah. That's how we get. Like little petulant children. And we think we're in control. We're not in control. We're not, we're not in control. The situation is out of control. See, I refuse not to die is a declaration that there is absolutely nothing for us to fear in this world. The greatest adversary was death. That's, that's what the greatest adversary was. And for every believer, death has lost its sting. I mean, really, what else is there to be afraid of? I mean, some folks should be afraid of hell. But we won't go down that path. But for every person on earth is for sure afraid of death. That's a natural fear. And in fact, that fear encompasses all other fears. It's the one fear to rule them all, if you will is death. Now what happens for a moment, just imagine for a second, if you're no longer afraid to die, what does that do for other decisions that you have to make in your life and other things that used to cause you fear? See, now you can have confidence that despite whether or not people reject you for preaching the gospel, that that's not going to bother you. If you're not afraid of dying, some guy on the street that you're never going to meet again certainly can't shake you. People calling you names or treating you like you're an idiot. How does that, how does that bother the person who's not afraid of dying? 
But see, here's the deal. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this, actually. But here's key point, key point. Key point number three. A mission-minded believer has nothing to lose and everything to gain. Nothing to lose, nothing to lose, and everything to gain. There is, there is no death for us. We only work for profit at this point. There's no deficit. There's no, there's no danger of deficit in my life. There's no danger of me losing the salvation that I have in Jesus Christ. There's no danger of me, of me if, I, if I fail being rejected of God, if I sin or make a mistake, he's not going to throw me away. I'm not working at a deficit. I don't go into the red anymore, right? It's only just gain from here. And so if I have nothing to lose, I'm playing with house money for all the gamblers <laughs> in the room. It's free money. There's nothing to lose. There's only things to gain. Unless fear, feel, uh, fear paralyzes you and you choose not to play. What are we going to do when the real persecution comes? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, there's Christians really up in arms about being persecuted right now, about masks and stuff. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. I don't think he ever imagined this moment and said to himself, well, you know, one day, 2,000 years from now, uh, they won't be beheaded, but they will have to wear masks. <laughs> what, listen, what are you going to do when the real persecution comes? And you're afraid and you're anxious now? In this moment, fear rules over you, insecurity rules over you, you want to hide away, you want to disappear, you want to let depression consume you, and you want to go, listen to me. We have to learn how to put our confidence in the Lord. And all of these issues, I'm not making light of them. They're real issues. They're issues for me, and they're issues for you. But see, here's the thing that I believe, is I believe that God has an answer. And when you start believing these truths, and you start placing your confidence in God, his control, his management, his power, and his outcomes, then the fear, it dissipates. It goes away. It, doesn't even, it begins to not even come to your mind. The things that I fear, they don't come to my mind. I'm too busy with the Lord's work. I'm too busy trusting him. I don't let things bother me. Stuff can roll off my back. I don't have to get up in arms about this or that. I can trust the Lord. I can put my confidence in him. Philippians 1.19 says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet, what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. I love this passage. I hope you do too. What Paul is saying here is, if I die, that's only gain. If I live, 
that's only gain too. If I stay here and I labor with you, if I have to do two more years in prison, so be it. Right? I mean, we're talking about Paul here. Mission-minded Paul, traveling the world, always on the move, in prison for two years. Trusting it to the Lord. If I die in prison, if they behead me, cool. If they let me out and I can minister some more, cool. That's the kind of thinking that we need to have. You will never truly know what kind of stuff you're made of until you've passed through the fire of suffering and you've come out unafraid. You'll never know. You'll never know what you're really made of in terms of your faith until you've passed through the fire, you've truly been persecuted, you've truly faced suffering, and you've come out on the other side more confident than you were before. Acts 20, 24, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace of God. As we close, I'm going to invite the worship team up. Can you guys come up? We'll close. Um, I know that because I preached a sermon about fear and about confidence, I know uh, that I... This sermon did not fix your fears. Like just the fact that I talked about this for 45 minutes to an hour did not fix the fears in your life. I can't do that for you, okay? Um, and, this is, and, and, and this is no magic bullet. See, decisions have to be made. And really, when I say decisions, I mean decision after decision after decision from now until the day that you die. Decisions have to be made. Determinations have to take place. You have to have resolve. And you've got to fix your mind on these confidences. You have to believe these things to be true. And when you do, you'll be set free from the bondage of your fear. You understand? But we have to have our confidence in the right place. And as we pray today, I want to ask two things. There's going to be counselors up here. They're actually going to stand right here, okay? Because we decided this is the most appropriate place for them to stand, not back there in the abyss, okay? They're going to stand right here. And so these, are, these people that are going to stand up here are some of my best friends in the world. And they're, they're worth talking to. But if you recognize... First of all, that you're a believer, but your life is riddled with fear. And you need to get that dealt with. You should come forward and talk to somebody about it and then pray over it. Like lay it down, lay it down, and let it die. Mortify it and trust it to God. You should come forward and do that. There are other people here today that everything I talked about, it sound real Christian-y and everything, but you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you haven't even tasted of the confidence that comes with knowing him. It's not even a savor that you've ever experienced. That's a, that's a light that you're not privy to. And if you recognize that you don't know Jesus, but you're inclined to know him, that you feel provoked in your heart, that you feel convicted, that you need to know who Jesus Christ is, and that you need to be relieved of the burden of your sin, I want to invite you to come forward and talk with someone. Okay, so those are the terms. Those are the terms of today's invitation as we praise. I'm so thankful that everyone's here. I love you. I hope today was edifying, but do not leave unless you, you've dealt with whatever is on your heart. Understand? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And we want no confidence in our flesh. So uh, I, I love the old saying. Uh, when... Uh, when someone says that they're doing their thing, when a believer says, well, how's that working out for you? And what that does, Lord, is it reveals to us that when we do our thing, when we've got, we've got, we think we've got things figured out or things under our control, that the truth is it's really not as satisfying as we want it to be. We still remain unsatisfied because you're the only true satisfaction. You're the only true gratification. You're the only true peace and comfort. And I know in a room this big that there's people today that don't have comfort in their lives because they've been trying to run their own lives. They've been trying to do it themselves. And so, Lord, today, I, I pray that you would show people their need to let go, 
to surrender and to lay their fears before you, that you can truly deal with them once and for all. And so, Lord, do your mighty work. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.